AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for September 15th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Patrick McKenna, and welcome, thank you for joining us, Patrick. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, it's good to see you again. And uh, we have uh, Joe Harden here. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Brian. I know you're always busy yeah. with our threat analysis platform, and it's nice of you to take a break with us. And yeah, perhaps, I'm going uh, to pitch into the show for the, all right. for the day. Well, good, so. thank you. And uh, Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. How's it and of going? course, you're always here, it seems. <laughs> I got nothing better to do, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, welcome to the program. And you know, we're going to start off on a light note, and Patrick, I'll let you take the lead on this one. It's a, a healthy anniversary here. Yeah, today's a special day. Now, I think many of you will be seeing this after the fact, but for your employees that are in SecOps between the ages of probably 25 and 45, maybe even 50, a special anniversary happened. It was September 15th, 1995, that the incredible piece of movie-making history, Hackers, was released. And so all of the security community is a Twitter talking about how much they either love or hate or love this movie seems to be inversely proportional to how old you are and your affection for movie making versus if you're younger and you want a, a true hacker story, there's a lot of complaints about how this movie doesn't accurately reflect reality. I'm wondering, what do you guys think? Of, is this a great movie? I think it's a, a nine. Is it a nine or is it a one? I'm going to give this to Matt first because he had the most compelling. I, I'd give it a nine out of a hundred, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, uh, were you six when this came out? <laughs> no, 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 man. Uh, but I, I do recall that we, I, I, I've definitely played drinking games to this movie. Um, yeah. Basically, whenever anything, and he says, hack the planet, or anything incredibly outdated, like, holy, like oh my gosh, it's a, it's a 14-4 modem or something. They're, they're oh, yeah, gushing yeah. over, like, <laughs> like, MIPS architecture or something. I forget what it was, but just like, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, full disclosure here, I don't know whether to be happy or disappointed that you said it was between like 25 and 45. <laughs> I happen to be, I happen to be a little over 50 and uh, still remember and, and enjoyed this movie. You know, this was Angela Jolie, Jolie and her, yep. and her and heyday here. Miller and a couple. Right. And, and uh, oh, what was his name? I was, um, it's uh, Pendulette. Pendulette's uh, one of yeah. the uh, security guys, I think. Right. And, and, you know, I have to digress for a moment here because I, I kind of consider the first real hacking movie to be War Games. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it, it didn't really have the same culture that this movie portrayed. And I think that was one of the things is this, this one really got into sort of the dark culture of the hacking. <laughs> sure. I mean, if, if everybody in the 90s who was a cyber criminal was like rollerblading around yeah. and wearing bright neon, <laughs> I guess. Well, anyway. So thank you for bringing that, Patrick. And I think it's good to recognize some of these things that uh, you know represent a uh, sort of milestones in our uh, sort of the culture and the history associated with the work that we're in here. It's just a great opportunity for executives and sales guys to uh, to reach out to their SecOps team and and have right? a moment of connection over the shared piece of culture. <laughs> Very good. Okay, you know. I kind of have a myeptic view of honeypots, but 
it sounds like you have a little bit of a new twist here to share with us. Is that right, Matt? It's a really, it's an old idea with a really nice coat of paint on it, a very cool implementation. Mm -hmm. uh, so Thinkst, who has been kind of getting uh, pressed these days for their Canary honeypots, which is sort of a deploy and go solution to the honeypot problem, they've released something called Canary Tokens, which I think actually came out around Black Hat, but now I know you can actually get the source code. So this is kind of a cool idea where um, if you've got certain parts of your network or certain files or things that people should not be sort of rooting around in. Mm -hmm. The whole idea is you set up what's called a canary token and you load it into a file somehow. You know, you can, you can put it into a doc file that calls out to an external resource or you can just have a link somewhere, say, in your email account. Maybe you email, your, maybe you email yourself a note mm -hmm. and it says, you know, don't forget to this and you put a link in there. Now, if someone's sort of rummaging around your stuff says, oh, he thinks this is important, they click the link. The link points to the server, the server fires an alert and says, hey, someone clicked on something that they should never be clicking on, you should take action. Mm -hmm. The blog post has a couple interesting ideas of how you might use it, you know, load it into like a, a doc file or a PDF or other places. Mm -hmm. But the, the it's kind of a cool idea. Yeah. I think the point is to give out the sources that, you know, if you're using this canarytokens.org, which they've set up as sort of a demo of how it works, you know, anybody who, who knows about it can say, well, don't let any connections from my machine out from canarytokens.org. But if you set it up on your own server and you give it a, an assuming name, like um, totally not suspicious server.att.com, right. um, you know, you have a better chance of it actually you know, doing its job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, I, I mentioned sort of my optic view of things, and uh, I've tended to think of, you know, you have to set up servers and try to draw people to it, you know, and what are the chances of an attacker going to a particular place when you have, you know, hundreds or thousands of servers that they could go to? What's the draw? And this is a case where you can basically locate some things like, you know, important documents, important documents mm -hmm. on a server that you are, really are concerned about in hopes of being able to capture the interest and in, uh, perhaps uh, noticing that they're there. So. And you can set up one token for each of your suspicious files. Right. You can have hundreds or thousands of them and deploy them across a network and um, have a pretty good idea where where things are going on. So, yep. so very interesting idea. information from the, the hacker that tripped the alarm? That's something you could block after the fact? I believe all that it does is, is, is notify you of the fact of, you know, this was requested and the IP address requesting it. Okay. Mm -hmm. If somebody tripped one of these alarms, how are you gonna, moving forward, what can you use from that to help help you later on? You know? Well, hopefully if, you, if there's no natting or, or changing of IP addresses between your sensor and where they are, right. you should be able to identify who it was or on what machine and then say, you know, based on the circumstances, you know, this is this is a file and a folder that only this account has access right. to, or, you know, this was an email that was in my personal email that no one else should have the password to. And based right. on the circumstances, you can decide what the compromise is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very good sense. stuff. Thanks for bringing that, Matt. I think that's, uh, you know, that kind of opens my mind at least in terms of what the, the potential of honeypots, perhaps something we can uh, look into further. Uh, Patrick, so I guess in terms of opening our minds and perhaps opening up the whole world of encryption. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Open, uh, yeah, so there's this great, there's an interesting project that's called Let's Encrypt, and this week, uh, they came online uh, with their first published certificate. So Let's Encrypt is a project that delivers a, a new free certificate authority, and it gives everybody the ability to set up basic server certs for their domain. If you've ever taken the time to actually set up a certificate on a web server, 
Uh, you kind of have two paths you can go. You can go to a certificate authority and pay money and go through their registration and approval process. And depending on the quality of the cert authority, that process can be expensive and take a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. Your alternative was to use OpenSSL or some other tool to establish self-signed certificates. And while that does provide you with encryption for the transport uh, for your web application, the problem is since you're self-signing, the visitors to your website who don't have the, the keys that you used to sign your own certificate, mm -hmm. they are going to get prompted with a certificate warning that says, hey, this certificate is potentially untrusted. And I think we've all probably seen this in very differing uh, warning messages from Chrome or Firefox or Internet Explorer. Mm -hmm. And most people just hit I accept, which is really bad practice. And so the, the, the Let's Encrypt folks are giving those people that are going the self-signed route a process that gets them free certificates, that gets them certificates from a, a very tightly managed certificate authority so that, uh, in theory, they're not likely to have a compromise. And it gets uh, their customers into using these certificates that don't prompt them up with these certificate warnings that are potentially bad. Mm -hmm. So... It's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, it's, it has the potential to really degrade the use of just clear text HTTP on the web. If everyone has this free alternative that doesn't have the, the issue with the cert warnings, um, it, it's really a no-brainer to try to use this tool. If you're using Apache or Nginx, they just have a very simple one-line Python script that you can run from your server, and it will automatically do all the interaction with the certificate authority to generate your free certificate. Mm -hmm. So in the traditional CA world, where it may take one to three hours, their goal is to get you up and running with a, a fully signed and production-ready cert in as little as 30 seconds. Um, this is probably not something that's going to be used by you know, major internet properties or banks, but it certainly puts uh, all of the power of SSL for both authentication and encryption in the hands of your average uh, website operator. So interesting model, uh, and uh, I think potentially it could be something very valuable for people uh, who have been avoiding encryption just because there's too much hassle with some of the other approaches out there. All right, reducing the hassle, that's a big deal. Yeah, and one thing, uh, so their website is letsencrypt.org. The certificate authority is not production ready yet, so they, they've published their first cert, but the, the, cert, the Let's Encrypt uh, certificate authority is not yet in the root store for major browsers. So mm -hmm. if a user wanted to use this today, they would have to manually go and install the Let's Encrypt cert, cert authority into their root store. That's generally a dangerous thing for a user who doesn't know what they're doing to do. Uh, the right path forward will, will be, you know, keep updating your browsers, and when the Let's Encrypt CA is included into your uh, your root store, uh, then you'll be able to start taking advantage of this for your own personal websites uh, mm -hmm. without uh, putting your customers at risk of getting that ugly uh, SSL uh, unverified cert warning. Ah, very cool. So, what's uh, what's the motive behind this? What how's it financed? It is financed by sponsorship from several major companies um, that include, I think, Cisco, uh, Mozilla, um, some other different companies. The EFF is behind it. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the major motivation is there is a desire to ensure that there are not third parties, uh, either at a nation state level or even in a hacker in your local Wi-Fi hotspot, 
that are intercepting all of this HTTP traffic. All right. the, the internet runs on port 80. And there are people who believe that the internet needs to transition completely over to encrypted. And so Let's Encrypt's idealistic objective is, is to try to make that change happen, even for lowly minor league website operators. All right. Well, sounds like a good motivation and, a, and a, a, I mean, certainly a good objective. And uh, it's so I guess I kind of wonder, I mean, you, you, I think you sort of pointed this out, that it's probably not major properties who are going to be doing this. It's going to be sort of the smaller organizations that, are go, that go down this avenue. I'd be kind of curious to understand or get the perspective of, you know, some of the certificate authorities, the ones that are trying to make money on this on this business and how they think that's going to impact their business. But um, perhaps that's not a security topic. Perhaps that's a business topic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for for the average security expert or the people that are advising companies, you know, what does this mean for them um, since they're probably not going to take advantage of less encrypt? I think the things to look out for is you're going to see a lot more pressure to get all of your web traffic encrypted properly. Um, Mm -hmm. You're also going to see some pressure for implementations of the appropriate level of encryption. So TLS 1.2 is what we should all be running today. Nothing SSL v2 or v3 or or older. Um, The the other thing to consider is certificate transparency is an idea that is baked into uh, the Let's Encrypt project, which is basically Mm -hmm. uh, a daemon that runs that people can query to validate that a certificate authority has not been compromised and published an illicit certificate for another company, uh, like the DigiNotar event. Um, so I think you know, for, for the, the operators and the, and the folks that are kind of at a, at a strategy level, what you probably want to take away from this is you might want to consider reevaluating what you're doing today with SSL and whether or not it's consistent with some of the ideals that are being pushed uh, by people who are very uh, privacy-centric uh, on the internet today. When you brought this up, it kind of helped me to reflect on some of the things that we've dealt with in terms of malware. You know, the, the, the malicious actors, the attackers, have been using certificates actually quite prolifically encrypting their traffic for some time now. And in fact, um, we've seen cases where they don't use the self-signed certificates either. They go and steal certificates from somebody and perhaps they're expired, but, you know, the malware doesn't care that the certificate's expired but uh, the traffic certainly gets encrypted. So kind of an interesting twist here that, uh, and obviously trying to chase, you know, get, get in front of what the, uh, what the attackers are able to do. So, I mean, I, I wish I knew a little bit more about this, but I'm seeing the, a setup time of 20 to 30 seconds. I'm wondering what the validation of the site actually is, what the process is behind it. Because if, you, if you're able to still go and say, you know, I'd like to get a certificate for Google.com, please, Mm-hmm. Uh, and this allows you to do it. I assume that if the the people who are players in this market will have knowledge of you know like certificate pinning and say, well, I, I can't give you one because Google.com already has this certificate on file. I, therefore, I can't assign you one unless you prove who you are. Well, that's an interesting question. So, how how effective is this going to be to prevent uh, someone else trying to spoof or appear as if they are somebody that they're not? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting question. So you can look up. They've got all of their, their source code available on GitHub today. And I started to peer through this because I have very similar questions, Matt. And uh, I, I don't have the answer, but uh, they, they, they do have all of the source available. So it is just a simple Python script that you install on your server. You can read through it to see what the exchange is. So uh, mm-hmm. a nice argument for transparency there. We don't have to kind of trust some... Tech, technology wizard to tell us what's happening. We can actually go through, look at the code, 
and confirm that things work as, as we expect them to. Probably worth you taking a, a little closer look at. So the next topic we're going to address here is actually a top five for the week. And uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about controls for DNS servers. And the inspiration behind this was actually an article that I ran across in InfoWorld. And the title of the article happened to be, How to Stop Your DNS Server from Being Hijacked. Uh, it's by uh, Roger A. Grimes. And, uh, you know, I have to say, when I started looking at it, I expected something different than I actually saw. That this title is a little bit misleading. You know, he, he, he goes into it, the, the, the article is actually uh, relatively accurate in terms of uh, what things that need to be done. But it's really focused on preventing DNS servers from being abused. He used the word hijacked, but abused for denial of service attacks. And, you know, we've talked, we frequently talk on this program about reflective denial of service attacks. You know, the first protocol, at least that we readily have recognized in using reflective denial of service is uh, DNS. And in fact, there was a lot of use of DNSSEC as a part of that, uh, you know, signed DNS responses to provide an amplifying factor. So uh, in any case, whereas DNSSEC is intended to keep from hijacking or poison poisoning DNS servers, uh, this is a case where we're talking a little, focused a little more on preventing DNS servers from being abused uh, for the purpose of reflective denial of service attacks. So the first one here, We'll give you give it to you, Matt. What would you recommend we do? So the first one is really to to make sure that you're if you're running an open relay DNS server that you fully intend to be doing that. So right. you know if you're running a DNS server and it's really meant for your company or your your organization, if you don't need to be exposing that to the open internet and resolving DNS for other people, mm -hmm. don't allow it to happen. I mean it's it's a it's a, a service that uses UDP, but for most transactions. And as we know, UDP is easy to spoof a source address and use it for reflective attack. Right. So if you don't have to be providing it, don't do it. Mm -hmm. All right, good. So close down to open DNS servers. Yep. All right, uh, next one, I'll go ahead and take it. And uh, for the ones that need to be there, and this is, I think, particularly kind of focused on authoritative DNS servers uh, because there are, you know, there's, there are, there are uh, resolvers that basically go find the authoritative servers, and the, there are the authoritative servers that actually resolve specific names. But in this case, um, we're going to talk a little bit about rate limiting. Now, rate limiting is actually a feature that was added to bind, and I happened to be kind of working a little bit with Paul Vixie at the time when he was working on this um, associated with bind. And the idea here is to kind of keep track of who asked questions and what questions they ask so that you can sort of keep that in state so that uh, if you get too many requests for the same thing, basically block it. And so you can control how many requests you're willing to accept in a particular period of time, and it helps to resolve this issue. That is part of the uh, mechanism that's necessary in a reflective denial service attack is the opportunity to be able to create lots of questions and to be able to keep getting responses for those lots of questions. And invariably, they're going to end up coming from the same source, which is actually the attack target, that spoof source address. So rate limiting, uh, resource li rate limiting, I think is the official name as it's used in Bind. I think it's a feature, as mentioned in an article, that's coming out in Microsoft's DNS servers as well. So Matt, let's go back to you. What do you think we should do next? So the third point is disabling upward referral responses. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a mouthful, but the general idea is if a DNS server doesn't have the answer for you, in the olden days of DNS, it was the polite thing to say, um, I don't know what that is, but you can go and ask this guy over here who is the next guy up the chain, mm -hmm. and he will probably have that response for you. 
turns out that that response is maybe a four or five factor magnification than the request that it, it created. And we've got the same problem we did with the reflection where someone asks a very small question, you get a very small response back. Uh, so most servers, modern servers, will disable this because any resolver that's worth its salt will know if I don't get an answer from this guy, I already know the next person up the chain right. because I can just go up another uh, level of domain and just ask him. Mm -hmm. So if you can disable that uh, referral on your server, you'll prevent the, the small amplification that you would get from using your server for that. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. So again, it's kind of along the theme of constrain the services that you provide to the ones that you expect to be providing it to. Yep. Right. All right, so let's go to you, Joe, and uh, what do you think? So you can check for undesired DNS services. Basically, be proactive. Scan your network on TCP and UDP 53 for any appliances or wireless routers that show up unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. Take a look. You know, you should have a good handle on what should be there and what shouldn't be there and just uh, get out in front of, you know, unexpected things that pop up on your own network. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's been all too often that we've found devices that they think they're designed for connecting to the internet, but, you know, from a security standpoint, they haven't been locked down and are offering services on the WAN side <laughs> when they perhaps meant to have DNS just on the WAN side, and uh, that potentially causes problems like this. So it wouldn't be necessarily impacting your DNS server per se, because this is a different DNS server, but it could impact your network service right. or that device because it's getting loaded down trying to conduct attacks against somebody else. So, and uh, next one item, uh, so what do you think, Patrick? Well, obviously the most important piece of advice in all of security is things need patching. And it turns out that DNS servers are actually like super critical to the functionality of the internet. So uh, I guess that that may be an area where we should put some priority. Uh, and, and just like, you know, there are vulnerabilities that come out all the time. Software gets updated all the time. The DNS obviously is, a, is something that is constantly being evaluated. And just at the end of July, there was a, a critical denial of, denial of service vulnerability discovered in Bind. Mm -hmm. So I can't really imagine a world in 2015 where anyone is operating DNS servers where they're not really paying attention to this, but you should be if you're not. So please make sure you are keeping your DNS servers up to date on their software releases. Yeah. You know, Patrick, when we were getting ready for the program, you had mentioned something about IPS. And, you know, I think in the context of response rate limiting or resource rate limiting, I kind of intended to mention it earlier, but, you know, that is a mechanism. If the DNS servers themselves don't have the controls that you need to perhaps put something in front of it that would be able to provide some of those controls. So I just wanted to acknowledge your, uh, your additional point. I don't know if that counts as number six or if it's maybe a, a, a subnote to, to, to our second item there. So there you have it, the top five controls for DNS servers. And again, we want to try to make sure DNS servers are resolving DNS and not actually being used to abuse others. Uh, so Joe, let's go to you next here. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, some relatively painful exploit activity. Yeah. So uh, Ars Technica picked up a blog post from Mozilla, the folks who put out the Firefox browser, mm -hmm. that they had an exploit where uh, an ad from a new service in Russia was serving out a Firefox exploit and searching for sensitive files and then uploading the files to a server in Ukraine. Mm. You know, standard attack, but the, the way that Mozilla explained is that they had a privileged user uh, of their Bugzilla bug bounty platform, basically Bugzilla. It's also free for other software 
teams to use as a bug tracker, mm -hmm. but it's where Mozilla keeps their own proprietary bugs. They had a privileged user have his password uh, stolen on another site. So he used the same password on another uh, website and there was a data breach on that site and that password was the same password that he used to get into Bugzilla as a privileged user. Mm. So basically they had this trove of their own internal bugs exploited by a hacker and they, you know, they put out a FAQ, the Mozilla people, about, you know, how many bugs were open, how long they were available to this attacker and, you know, what the risk is. So basically there's 185 total bugs that were available, 53 severe vulnerabilities, and of those 53, uh, 10 that were currently unpatched. And this exploit that they found with the ad is one of those 10. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mozilla's patching stuff retroactively and uh, addressing the situation, but you know there there is this sort of release of their own internal bugs out there. Um, they're saying users should upgrade to the latest Firefox, which a lot of folks would do automatically. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just thought it was interesting because it kind of hits on two of our sort of trendy topics in this world. One that, you know, everybody's going into these bug bounty programs, but, mm -hmm. you know, when you have a bug bounty program, now you have a treasure trove of your bugs, and you need to make sure that it's locked down. And having, you know, a user with one password to get in and that same user not being controlled on how he uses passwords, probably not the best way to control your treasure trove. Yeah. So, you know, they are going through steps of implementing two-factor mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, zoning off certain bugs to certain users, but uh, it's one of those cases where it really shows you the value of some of these vulnerabilities and how you need to protect them. Yeah, so. sort of an unfortunate circumstance. You know, I, I, my personal feelings, this sounds probably a little worse than it really is in the sense that you know, most circumstances, the, the code is accessible or, you know, it can be ex accessed through some means, whether through an exploit or maybe it's open source. But in any of those cases, those bugs are, are accessible by attackers if they have the will and, the, you know, the desire to get to them and find them. It, the question really becomes here, I guess this made it a little more convenient that those bugs were kind of right in their right. face. It's not they were. It's not as if they were introducing the bugs. <laughs> it's a it's a case where they were just more easily discoverable, and perhaps the opportunity to exploit those was a, a little bit. Right, more and any well. delay in patching mm -hmm. known bugs. You know, if if Mozilla had these bugs that they knew about, you know, that they're sort of paying the price for the delay in fixing mm -hmm. stuff that they knew about. So, right. it's uh, it's interesting. So, uh, Patrick, you were just uh, emphasizing the need for patching. And um, what are your thoughts? I kind of disagree with you I, um, in terms of the, 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 the quality of the problem here. Yeah. This reminds me very much of the, was it Aurora? The, the hack of, of Google's yeah. uh, mm -hmm. CVS solution back in, what was that, four or five years ago? Yeah, it's difficult to defend a situation where you have any access to sensitive production infrastructure and you're reusing passwords in any public forums. Uh, in, uh, I, I recently saw on Hacker News, so there was some publishing of someone else's custom propri proprietary algorithm for remembering a password for individual sites. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really where things break down is if you have to change a password, suddenly you have to change your whole algorithm and you lose whatever you used across older sites. Mm -hmm. So this is a really great example 
of the need for password management solutions. And a, a real important anecdote to remember, if you are operating at a company where you're responsible for browsers used by millions of users or any software used by millions of users, you need to make sure you have incredible password hygiene and two-factor authentication. That is a real disappointing uh, situation. So mm -hmm. yeah, we need patching, but uh, I guess it should be real obvious given that we have companies whose job it is to sell vulnerabilities uh, to various different actors. If you're operating software used by lots of people, you're a target and that password needs to be unique and strong. You cannot yeah. reuse that elsewhere. Excellent points. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, and, and notwithstanding my my uh, sort of downplay of the uh, significance of the actual the uh, the consequences of this, but uh, the the points that led to it, I think, are very significant and right on point. And I want to just say that Brian, you are really great at things. I think I've twice now given you the opportunity to be miffed at me. First for my hackers' ageist <laughs> comment, and second for my challenging your security prowess. You're incredible. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. I just wanted to say, Patrick, your, your, your mention of that, the, the guy's um, password generation algorithm that got leaked to the internet had me thinking. Passwords shouldn't, they should be secret, but their contents should not also be secrets on their own. I mean, mm. I think we've seen cases where someone was a, you know, a hacker would go in and create an account for himself on some machine and he would put some sort of personally identifying information in the password. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, on the Ashley Madison leaks when you have people putting things that they think are secrets that no one will ever know into the passwords, which I think was an Ars Technica article mm. this week. If you're gonna be generating a password, exposure of the password should not cause you extra damage beyond the fact that it was a password. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, very good story. I'm glad this uh, it inspired some good discussion here. And uh, now for like the gee whiz, this is weird. <laughs> I, Little gizmos that uh, steal your stuff. Okay, so go ahead, Matt. <laughs> so this is, this is probably the coolest thing I've read all week. Yeah. Um, Brian Krebs of Krebs on Security, um, who I think everybody who watches our show has heard of him at this mm -hmm. point. He actually, he went to Mexico for four days on a trip uh, specifically to take a look at Bluetooth skimmers mm -hmm. on ATMs in Mexico, and particularly in, in luxury tourist areas like resorts and resort towns. Right. Now, did he mention why he picked Mexico? Because he did receive a tip from someone who, who is remaining anonymous to say that this, this was going on, this activity, mm -hmm. and what well, I should probably explain what this is. It turns out that some criminal element is approaching ATM technicians in Mexico and, and offering them a sum of money above what they would normally pay their salary to introduce a device into the ATM. It's so it's inside? Inside of the ATM. So it's an insider putting something inside? Correct. Okay. Uh, these are skimmer devices, which, which Krebs has written about numerous times before. The interesting twist on this one is that they have a Bluetooth uh, radio inside of them. So as you, they skim the data, they save it, and if someone comes by with a phone and fires up the Bluetooth, they will see uh, basically a Bluetooth beacon with the name Free to Move, which is the mm -hmm. name of a manufacturer of these Bluetooth beacon devices. Now, as we understand it, thieves come, come within maybe 10, 20 feet of the, the ATM, fire up their Bluetooth, and retrieve files off the device. So as far as anybody knows who's just watching, you know, 
this guy has never interacted with the ATM, but he's still retrieving the card data. Mm -hmm. uh, that card data is protected, the device is protected with a pin, but the data is also apparently separately encrypted. So whoever these guys are, they're basically the mules. They have no right to see the data. They're, re they're probably returning it to some other person who will mm -hmm. later you know, decrypt it, give them their cut, and save the rest. So there's some very cool videos on the site where he shows, you know, his personal phone walking up to ATMs in these locations. He talks about, you know, talking to the, the owners of a hotel who didn't realize this device was there or various people mm -hmm. in the airport that he had, he had found about 14 of these different ATMs in different places in, in Mexico. Wow. So quite it's, a few. it's a multiple part story. I'm, I'm dying to see where this goes because there's yeah. been two through parts released so far. Mm -hmm. But honestly, pretty sophisticated pretty exciting stuff okay well and all I, they'd have to do is rename the the name the Wi-Fi is broadcasting as and it wouldn't be easily detectable right, right? the the Bluetooth beacon they could have renamed what the name was yeah. but um, there was someone in the comments saying they would also if you wanted to do it right you could detect it by the Bluetooth hardware ID that okay. gets broadcast as well um, you probably need some other software because Krebs is just using the default Android and it says it by name not by hardware ID right, right, okay. but anybody who knew a little bit about Bluetooth could go basically war walking for these devices and when one shows up they could mark it and say okay I'm within 10 feet of a skimmer device. Yeah. Well, for a novice if you ever see a free to move Wi-Fi you know something funny is around huh? Potentially. Um, you know it's it seems that the whoever put this scam together wasn't expecting anyone to be looking for them so they're all named the same. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. sure that after this enough people will have read the article that whoever tries it next will try to be a little more uh, discreet about naming the, uh, the Bluetooth so they shouldn't call it like uh, compromised ATM. Yeah. Totally like not an ATM. Yeah. 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 Krebs <laughs> got to be careful that nobody down in Mexico is looking for him. Well, he did. He did make a point of publishing after he left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I kind of wonder how much. Uh, I mean, this is this is neat because it's Bluetooth for transport, but I I can't really see this as being an exceptionally secure mechanism for protecting your mules. If you're to sit down with like an Uber tooth and sniff in the proximity, you're going to know when someone who knows to attach for this device mm -hmm. is going to be attaching to it. So it, it seems to me like an exotic attempt to try to prevent someone from being captured in the act of withdrawing this information from the ATM. Because if mm -hmm. you video it, you're just going to see a person walking by. Yeah. Uh, but you, if, you're, if you're law enforcement watching for this, it, it should be trivial to monitor the Bluetooth in that proximity, see what's attaching, and then gather the device ID of what's attaching to, uh, to the ATM. And mm -hmm. you know, again, since you're watching the traffic, you're gonna see it happen, you're gonna know who's in the physical proximity and you're gonna be able to act then. So yeah. I, 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 I agree, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Is this really super new? Well, well, I agree. Go, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say that that's, that's all fine and, and dandy as long as you've identified these devices. Now, to dedicate extra personnel to sit there and wait for some dude to show up with a Bluetooth phone and pull the data off, that's, that's an investigation. Now, yeah. I'm sure that for the 14 that they found, there's probably, you know, maybe, I don't know, I, I, would, I would hazard to say maybe 50 more of them out there in various places. Mm -hmm. And to cover them all with an individual agent and a Bluetooth one with the proper software, it's kind of a, it's an investment. Yeah, this is a little bit like uh, you don't have to be able to, you don't really have to be able to outrun the bear. You just have to be able to outrun your friends. Or the, and, the number of provincial cops <laughs> that you have one. Yeah. Right, so that's one aspect of this. I think perhaps the other aspect, and I think you hit on it, Matt, is the folks that are retrieving this data are mules. They're sacrificial. Yeah. 
I think what they were really trying to do is they had to get, they had got a device inside the ATM and they needed a way to get the data out. And so how do you get it out? Well, Bluetooth, why not? So I think it was just really, I mean, that my interpretation perhaps just not necessarily to subvert the law enforcement or necessarily, I mean, perhaps it helps, but uh, it may have been just as much as anything else, just a convenient way to communicate out from the inside of the box. Without having to, to tap into the functionality okay. of the ATM, you don't have to use the phone or the Ethernet right. or whatever it is built into it, you just need to slot this thing in. Yep. So. Have we seen this on any of the TV shows yet, Matt? None of the TV shows that I'm watching. Okay. That it's just a matter of time. <laughs> it's a matter of time. It should come up pretty soon. Yeah. Let's take a look at what's been happening on the Internet for the last week or so here. And uh, first item here is scan probes on port 32764. This isn't terribly new activity. Uh, we've been uh, kind of tracking this before. And uh, it, it's actually, th this port is associated, sort of loosely, loosely associated with a what was actually a uh, exploit backdoor. So it was a, sort of a reactivation capability associated with it. I don't know the specific details off the top of my head, but in this particular case we're seeing some uh, on the order of hundreds of sources from Korea and some others from US, Taiwan, I think I saw a number of other countries involved in that. So it appears to have some sort of botnet relationship associated with it, but not a very huge botnet that's uh, doing that recruiting activity. But you can see that there's certainly been some spiky activity probing for that particular port. Looking at the top 10 most probe ports, uh, we have one that really sticks out, actually two of them that sort of stick out here. First of all, port 23 at the top of the list, it really has been taking its um, taking charge in terms of uh, the top of the top 10 most probe ports. As, uh, and in this particular case this week, it's uh, followed by 1900 UDP. Uh, we'll talk about each of those in a little more, more detail. And then followed by port 22 TCP, SSH, a lot of probing activity on that one. Uh, in some cases, uh, looking for uh, devices or even administrative access in the systems. Followed by port 80, 443, 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database, 445 TCP, 8080 TCP. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's associated with the proxies, sometimes associated with uh, Tomcat interfaces. So Apache Tomcat administrative interface tends to run on port 8080 TCP. If you're running a web server and you have Tomcat or Java services associated with that, pay attention to that particular port. And then followed by port 21 TCP, of course, uh, there are file uh, FTP servers out there that, um, that uh, attackers are looking for. Looking a little more closely at the uh, scan probes on port 23 TCP, this is Telnet, and as we've said many times, it's generally looking for Internet of Things devices that have not been locked out. Don, well, Joe, you mentioned earlier about making sure they don't have DNS services offered. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, these devices have tel Telnet offered. Mm. Uh, it's simply because the operating system hasn't been locked down. It probably has a default password associated with it. The attackers figure out what those passwords are and go around looking for them. So. Uh, this is a case where we've seen some uh, increased growth in activity in terms of probing on this port. Peaked out at, you know, actually <laughs> hundreds of millions of probes here. The scale here is pretty large in terms of the number of probes. In fact, they did a calculation recently just looking at the number of flows on the network relative to the number of probing activities we see on the network. And it's, it's up around like one and a half percent, actually sometimes higher than that. Uh, in terms of the number of probes relative to the other. So it's, a, it's not an insignificant part of the network, um, relatively speaking. So in any case, there are tens of thousands of sources doing this probing, and we're going to take a look at, um, at this. Most 
aggressive ones are actually from China, but we see uh, sources all over the place. Looking a little closer at port 1900 UDP, this is simple service discovery protocol. It's intended to be used for uh, on a local network, like a behind a home router, and the function is to be able to support universal plug and plays, that is applications that need to do peer-to-peer, -peer, oftentimes gaming applications, for example. They need to be able to open up a port so that they can accept connections from, uh, from outside inward. So it's basically trusting an internal system to be able to control that firewall rule as well. A lot of these devices have exposed that port 1900 UDP on the WAN side, on the internet side of it, and uh, it gets used for uh, predominantly distributed reflective denial service attacks. So some ISPs have been doing some work to uh, block some of that activity and uh, it has created a deterrent for the, uh, for the actual attacks. And I'll show the, the trend to you in just a moment here. But uh, I think as a consequence, what the attackers are doing is they're doing more probing, looking for devices that still have that exposed and that they can exploit for the purpose of denial service attacks. There was a period of time where there was basically a wall in this probing activity. It appears that the botnet that was being used by a predominant attacker group here basically was down for one reason or another, or they uh, you know, suspended the activity for a period of time for some reason, uh, and then they restored it. So I think that was one of the reasons that in our, uh, in our ranking, uh, this kind of fell off the radar last week, and then it's popped back up, uh, increased in size. And so looking at this view, we're looking at the number of sources doing the probing, you can see that there's a similar trend, that there was a drop off in the number of sources, and then basically that came back to, uh, back to life again. So it is a botnet that is a lot of sources, a number of sources, hundreds here, that are doing that probing activity, went away, and then came back. Now in terms of the actual attack activity, uh, this is basically looking at the last 180 days. The bottom trend actually is looking farther back than the 180 days. But what that represents is basically uh, as less and less attack tra traffic is uh, successful using this port 1900 UDP. And actually, from our perspective, some of that may not even be getting into the network. So uh, there are blocks in place to be able to help control that. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, Port 23, far and above the top of the list here, and uh, we'll take a little closer look at that. Not much movement in the other ports and protocols on this list. It seems to have been pretty stable over the last several weeks. Uh, and again, Port 23 really way out in front. Looking at the last 90 days, we do see, I guess, a subtle increase in the activity on Port 23 in terms of the number of sources. So I tend to think of this or refer to this as saturation, that is for the devices that are known that are can be exploited, They've basically been exploited at this point, and the botnets uh, that are operating on this are basically in sort of a maintenance mode. You know, it goes up and down a little bit as, they, uh, as uh, devices perhaps get reset for one reason or another, and then they go back out and, uh, and recruit them further again, and it, and it continues on. Before you go on, Brian, I was thinking about, about your question, Joe, about whether or not there's been any devices in the media that have that, that Bluetooth you sort of walk by and grab your data. In the movie Black Hat, Michael Mann, there actually is a device like that. It's being used as a file drop, and there's characters that, I might be spoiling something here, um, <laughs> but there's, there's a, a scene where, you know, spoiler alert, there's a, a device in a park. It's a battery-powered Bluetooth device that people walk by, and they, mm. they're sending messages to each other through this so they don't have to send it over the cellular network. Oh, cool. So kind of yeah. close to what you were talking about. Cool. Yeah. And that's a new movie? It's about a, a year old now, I think. Oh, okay. Very cool. I haven't seen it yet, so so potentially uh, hopefully it isn't terribly 
<laughs> just, hope, okay. just hope the movie didn't inspire the skimmers, right? Hopefully it was the other way around. Hopefully, well, I don't know which one is better, actually. <laughs> yeah, right? It's not good either way. All right, so we started with the movies, ended with the movies. Yeah. Very good. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, and we'd like to hear from you, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel. That's techchannel.att.com. Uh, it's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Matt. I'm Brian. And uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.